Whether you drive a car, need a car, or just occasionally bum a ride with friends, you've come to the right place. Join the editors of Consumer Guide Automotive as they break down everything that's going on in the auto world. New car reviews, shopping tips, driving green, electric cars, classic cars, and plenty of great guests. This is the Consumer Guide Car Stuff Podcast. Here's your host, Tom Appel. All right, this is the Consumer Guide Car Stuff Podcast, and I am Tom Appel, publisher of Consumer Guide Automotive. Thanks for joining us today. Hey, please check us out at ConsumerGuide.com. While you're there, check out our 2021 Best Buy Picks. This list is an excellent starting place if you are looking for a new vehicle. You will also want to check out our blog for complete reviews of all the vehicles we're driving here at Consumer Guide and all sorts of other fun stuff. You can also catch up on back episodes of the podcast right there on our homepage. All right, let's see who's online with us today. She is the managing editor of Pickup Truck Plus SUV Talk, and her freelance work can be found all over the internet. Hello, Jill Simonillo. Hello, Tom Appel. How are you? I'm doing really well. How are you doing today? I'm good. Hey, you and Damon were right about something, and I was wrong. <gasps> yeah, Mia culpa. Are you ready? Yeah. I had referred to the Ford Bronco Sport as a, quote, four Tom car. Uh, which means that me, big guy Tom, can fit in all four places at the same time. That is incorrect. Oh. It's technically correct, but I would be very unhappy. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, most cars are four Jill cars or five Jill cars or yeah. even eight Jill cars. So, you know, I, I don't know. Yeah, the four Tom car thing is kind of rare. And in this case, it, it was not to be. It, as Damon has noted, and we'll introduce him in a moment, so he can't talk yet. Uh, <laughs> Yeah. Uh, oh. <laughs> <laughs> kind of a deal breaker for him. Uh, speaking of Damon, uh, he's a senior editor here at Consumer Guide <laughs> Automotive, and his new book of automotive review haiku has just been released. Welcome, Damon Bell. <laughs> you're the haiku guy, not me. I am. Yeah. It's yeah no, your your it's book is out there now, Automotive Symmetric by Damon. Oh. Do you have a sample haiku that I apparently have written? You have no idea how glad I am you asked. <laughs> oh, no. Because, of course, the answer is yes. Yes. <laughs> uh, this is from page 17. Are you ready? <laughs> sure. No, I want you to go to page 22. That's where the good one is. Yeah, yeah. This is page 22. <laughs> oh, oh, 22. Okay, you just read it wrong. Okay, go ahead. Back seat, much too small. Mazda CX-3, no more. Buy CX-30 instead. <laughs> wow, they're they're artful and informational. God, those that's really going to take off for me. I think. I think so too. Yeah. Yeah. So, in in terms of the Bronco Sport, that yeah, that is definitely not a Ford Damon car. That's easily a Ford Jill car, and it could oh, also yeah. be a two Damon two Jill car, either in the front seat or the back seat. Yeah. Yeah. Because if Jill's in the front seat, she would have the front seat move forward far enough that I would have enough leg room in the back seat, just enough leg room in the back seat and vice versa. Headroom is not a problem in, in any of the seats because no. that's a nice boxy upright roof line. And it, I was noticing on the one we have in right now, it's got that nice little safari roof kick up just mm -hmm. the rear seat starts, which I think is kind of a cool styling feature as well as being a uh, handy thing that gives you a bit more headroom in the back seat. Do you remember the, of course you do, the Nissan Xterra? Mm-hmm. <laughs> that had that kick up that it protected yeah. with like a, a luggage rack? That was a right. good look. Mm-hmm. That was yeah. a good look. I think like we talked about uh, months back, I'm sure Nissan wishes that it had never dropped the, the Xterra because that would be a very in fashion vehicle right now had they continued to produce it it would they be bring it, it back given mm. given ford's insane success with the forerunner or ford i'm sorry toyota's mm -hmm. yeah mm -hmm. it would seem like there's a market there for that hey guys our guest today is harry moser he's the president of the reshore initiative we're going to be talking about manufacturing bringing jobs back to the u.s and whatever else is on harry's mind you don't want to miss this conversation but but before that, um, guys, Jeep's make a, making a little bit of news. Uh, Damon, what's going on there? Yeah, so they have just uh, unveiled, or the, the test drive impression embargo has just lifted on the new 
Jeep Grand Cherokee L, and the L is very important in this case <laughs> because it denotes an extended length Grand Cherokee that has a third seating row. Now, that's something that the Grand Cherokee has never had before, and amazingly enough, the only previous Jeep to have it, in, in recent times at least, is the uh, late, unlamented uh, <laughs> Jeep Commander. Doesn't it seem odd to you guys that Jeep has not really been in the three-row SUV space until right now? I mean, you know, that it hasn't had more three-row SUVs than it has? Um, it does. And interestingly, there is a three-row variant of the Cherokee that is sold in China. Really? Uh, yeah, it's it's on that same architecture as the Cherokee, and I don't know why we haven't seen anything like that in the U.S. We may in the future, but yes, it's extremely weird, given that shoppers seem to prefer three rows, even if they're not going to use them. Yeah, and it's it's the we should mention too, it, the Jeep strategy with this new Grand Cherokee is a little unusual because uh, the current generation two row Grand Cherokee has been around for like a decade, and despite being one of the oldest vehicles in the midsize SUV segment, it's consistently one of the best selling, uh, kind of an age-defying performance, but this new Grand Cherokee L is actually kicking off the next generation of the Grand Cherokee, the mm -hmm. fifth generation. Uh, so there will be a two-row variant of this Grand Cherokee L, but Interestingly, they've chosen to launch the three-row version first. And, and yeah. we've been a little confused about this strategy <laughs> because it seems as if they, their hearts aren't in this launch for some reason. This is being overshadowed so much by the fact that we're all waiting for the Wagoneer and Grand Wagoneer. We're yeah. dying to drive that thing. That's, that's of course, their large SUV, their brand-new large SUV. Uh, but, but this is huge news because this is such a profit center for Jeep and for FCA, which we now call Stellantis. A lot of renaming there. Uh, mm -hmm. But this yeah. vehicle is hugely important. It's a profit center for the company. Uh, and I think they, 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 for years, have not wanted to mess with success. Yeah, well, you know, and I, I, what's really interesting, since you brought up the Grand Wagoneer, I have seen so many comments on my TikTok page saying, well, this is just the Grand Wagoneer. And I'm like, it's not the Grand Wagoneer. This no. is very different. And right. so, I, you know, and, and they're like, well, how is it different? And so I'm, I always say three, three things, because you don't have a lot of space to respond in, in social media. But it's Grand Wagoneer's body on frame. Uh, it's going to be larger. And uh, it's going to be more luxurious and obviously more expensive. So um, they're not the same. You know, the, the, the Grand Cherokee L is not the Grand Wagoneer. <laughs> yeah. They're very the, different vehicles. Yeah, and it's an interesting. So the forthcoming Wagoneer and Grand Wagoneer, which we should see uh, hit, this, hit the market uh, later this year, those are uh, completely full-size SUVs mm -hmm. that will compete with your Ford Expeditions, your Chevy Tahoes, your GMC Yukons, and then the Grand Wagoneer will be fully in the luxury segment competing against your Lincoln Navigators, your Cadillac Escalades and the like, and that Grand Wagoneer is going to crest the six-figure mark in top mm -hmm. trims. Uh, $100,000 plus Jeep, which is, is, is crazy to think about. But this, the new Grand Cherokee, Tom and I were just talking about how this is occupies a very interesting spot that straddles the upper end of the midsize SUV segment yeah. and comes right up close to that large SUV segment. I think in wheelbase, the Grand Cherokee L is actually longer than a, a Chevy Tahoe. So the Grand Cherokee, even before this three-row L version, has always been sort of a, a standout vehicle because it's a little bit different than the rest and that it, you know, most of the other midsize SUV competitors do not offer a V8 like the Grand Cherokee traditionally does. And this new Grand Cherokee L does as well. Mm -hmm. um, and you're gonna get a little bit better towing capacity and certainly Jeep's characteristic off-road uh, prowess when properly equipped. Uh, but the, yeah, the addition of the third row seat and that significant uh, length and wheelbase stretch really puts this Grand Cherokee L in an even more interesting spot that is, it doesn't really have direct competitors. 
Yeah, well, Jeep is actually calling it a full size in their press materials. Um, so, yeah. I mean, Tim and I, my boss and I, we've actually been comparing it more to Tahoe and saying Grand Wagoneer and, and Wagoneer are probably more of the suburban. Um, so, I, I mean, it, it is the top end of midsize, but Jeep is calling it in their materials full size. And, and that's I can see why they would do that in it. But when you look at the pricing, the, the Grand Cherokee L, I, it's like a twenty to thirty thousand dollar stretch between the yep, thirty thousand dollar stretch from yeah. the entry level to the top end, which is a huge uh, span to cover. And unlike your Tahoes and your Yukons, you can get into a Grand Cherokee L for comfortably under fifty grand. Under uh, forty. <laughs> under is it even the, under forty? Yeah, you're right. Like the base price is like base. without destination is thirty seven. Yeah, I think popularly equipped, you're you're going to go past forty. But yes, if you have a bare bones uh, model, you can be sub forty k. And the measurements are very interesting because um, it is bested in some cargo area measurements by the upper end of the midsize class, like a VW Atlas or a, a Kia Telluride. Um, but again, you can't get either of those with a V8 and and the the off-road prowess isn't there so yeah it's it's we're seeing such a proliferation of of suv models that there aren't going to be too many holes in an suv lineup left unfilled moving forward here you know what's interesting too is that that we've heard stories and they're not stories this is happening is there are jeep dealers spinning off from the traditional fca uh, Stellantis North America showrooms, which have everything in them to just form Jeep stores. And and Jeep now has three new products to put in them this year, right? Yeah. Grand Cherokee L, Wagoneer, and then Grand Wagoneer. And they're all larger than anything they had sold previously. Yeah. And so we we have uh, one of our uh, uh, freelance guys have has covered the the Grand Cherokee L for us. So Tom and I have not driven it ourselves yet. There have just been preview test drives. But I've Jim, driven you it. Were on, you were on the press <laughs> drive, and I was I was struck in looking over the materials that those high end models look to be very luxurious, even more so than the previous or the existing two row Grand Cherokee, which got pretty ritzy in its upper trim levels too. So you've sat in it and you've experienced the top end models. Is it as lavish as it looks in the photos? Yeah, I mean, I was actually driving an Overland model, um, which is their more off-roady version, but I did sit in um, the, what I think they're calling it the High Summit Reserve, the, the top yeah, tier Summit. trim with the, yep. the, um, the quilted seats and the, uh, you know, one of the really cool things is it has a quad zone climate control in it and I, I i think those are probably only available in the top or you know upper tier trims but the um so in addition to being able to adjust you know for the driver and for the passenger the the actual temperature your right and left outboard passengers can also adjust their temperature so i, I like in our household that totally would have been awesome because i'm the one who would have wanted 80 degrees and <laughs> heated seats whereas my sisters are like yeah let's turn it down to 60 and cooled seats and i'm like dying so um you know, I thought that was a really cool feature. And I'd also like to point out, you know, you mentioned the, the cargo capacity is a little bit smaller than Telluride. But here's the thing. The third row legroom is better. And mm -hmm. uh, specifically during the preview, um, I, I, I grabbed a fellow, <laughs> Mario Holmes, who's one of the, the Jeep guys. He's 6'4". And uh, so I made him climb into the third row with me. And he had an inch between his knee and the back of the seat. He had probably an inch or two between his head and the ceiling. So the, 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 the ceiling is scalloped in the back so that you have extra room. And, uh, and, and then I made him get out of that seat and then sit in the second row seat to see if he still had enough leg room. And he did. So um, I, I think that could have been like a six Mario vehicle. Um, if, if we're going to go back to, or you might even be a six Damon vehicle. So I was, I was pretty impressed with that. And, um, you know, the amount of attention that they gave to passenger volume was huge, but again, okay. Yeah. You can fit six people in here comfortably, probably for a road trip, but what do you do with their luggage? <laughs> right. 
I think behind the third row, uh, the measurement is like about 17 cubic it is. carbon yeah. bottoms. So, Which isn't bad. Yeah. No, it's, it's not bad. And and I think because of the design of the, um, I was going to call it the Wagoneer, the Grand Cherokee L, because it's so upright, I think you might be able to fit um, roller boards upright. So you might be able to fit four or five roller boards like stacked in there with some backpacks on top. I, I, I would have to wait for an at-home test to see that. But um, I thought the Grand Cherokee L, I, thought, I think they knocked this out of the park. You know, Tom brought up the Commander at the um, beginning and that was a woefully poor vehicle. And this is not that, this is pretty awesome. So yeah, I was, Damon, I was incredibly Damon brought up Commander, but that's a terrible vehicle. Oh, it was, it yeah. was a top heavy <laughs> nightmare. Uh, just real quick, cause we're out of time. Um, because this is a Jeep, there's always one version of the vehicle that is trail rated, trail rated. That is yep. just the, the high mid-level Overland model right now, correct? Yes. And you have to get a special package for that. Yeah. And it, I mean, the I, the things that that vehicle did, I was so impressed. Like I just kept thinking, this is a three row vehicle. This should not be able to. Like I took video of it going over cement moguls. Like I'm like, this should not be able to do that. Yeah, that's pretty cool. So we should just clarify now the Jeep Grand Cherokee L on sale soon. That's the new three row version of the Grand Cherokee. And then a redesigned version of the two row version uh, we haven't seen yet, but that should be coming soon. Yes, I think Q3. All right, we have reviews of that that we're going to post. We're going to take a break, and when we come back, we talk to Harry Moser of the Reshore Initiative. Stick around. Welcome back to the Consumer Guide Car Stuff Podcast. All right, we're back. This is the Consumer Guide Car Stuff Podcast, and I am Tom Appel, publisher of Consumer Guide Automotive. Thanks for sticking around. Hey, this is the part of the show when I strongly recommend you follow me on Twitter. I am Car Guy Tom. That is Car underscore Guy underscore Tom on Twitter. I promise to entertain. All right, our guest today spent 25 years at the helm of a company that sold and manufactured CNC machine tools. Today, he is president of the Reshoring Initiative, a group dedicated to bringing manufacturing back to the United States. He is a mechanical engineer and an MBA. Welcome to the Car Stuff Podcast, Harry Moser. Hey, Harry. (laughs) Hi, John. It's really good to talk to you again. Harry, um, this is a fascinating thing for me because my father spent so much time in manufacturing. Tell us a little bit about what your company is and and what it is you're trying to accomplish. Okay, well, we're not trying, we're doing. Remember uh, Yoda (laughs) and uh, Luke Skywalker, (laughs) we're we're doing. And uh, uh, our mission is to bring 5 million manufacturing jobs to the U.S. from offshore, jobs that have been lost to uh, offshoring, lost to imports. And the way we do it is we... Uh, document the trend, uh, the trends of both reshoring, which is by U.S. companies, and FDI, foreign direct investment, by foreign headquartered companies. So we document it to let companies see how many of their competitors and their peers have successfully reshored. So we've we've shown that the uh, that in the last ten years, the annual rate of jobs coming back has grown from about six thousand per year to about 160,000 per year. So we wow. document and then we we promote, so I'm talking to you and you're gonna get the word out. Uh, this, we, this year I'll do 60 or 70 podcasts, uh, webinars, things like that all over the country. Uh, we write an article a week roughly. Uh, we're interviewed all the time, media, good media. And, uh, and, and so we, we promote and then we enable, we have tools to help companies make better decisions, tools to help them uh, rethink what they've offshored and decide that for them, they'll be more profitable reshoring. Harry, Harry, why did we begin reshoring in a big way? It seems like I started hearing about this in the 80s, Um, but, but what was the motivation for that? And what is the motivation now for people to be bringing manufacturing back? Okay. So I think you're asking me why did we offshore so much? Yeah. And yep. the, uh, okay. And and the reason was price. Overwhelmingly, it was price, especially you know, 30, 40 years ago, 50 years ago, when we started with Japan. Uh, people went abroad because the wages were a tenth of ours. 
the people worked hard, the companies invested, and and you could buy something for 30, 40% less than you could in the United States. And so to, to compete, to, to meet the consumer demand for lower prices, uh, they went abroad for price. Uh, also impacted by subsidies. We hear about China subsidizing, uh, sure. China companies stealing intellectual, all this stuff. But finally, it's price. You can, you can buy it there for substantially less. And then over time, let's say in the last 15, 20 years, because of that, of those people going offshore, the U.S. industry hollowed out. So it's pretty soon you couldn't buy some things here. There's all kinds of things now you, you can barely find in the United States. And therefore, companies go abroad to buy it because it's available there. But it's only not available here because the companies were wiped out by the by the price competition. To some extent, uh, re- response. I mean, very, very sadly, some companies tell me they buy from China because they can they get a quicker quote and they get a uh, a quicker delivery than from the U.S. company down the street. And that's our fault. That's the fault of our companies not being responsive. Let's talk about the China thing a little bit. Um, Chinese manufacturing, um, for for a long time, seemed to be the panacea for a lot of large companies. It just seemed clear that if you moved there, you're going to be more profitable. Obviously, you've discovered that that isn't always the case. Is there a break-even point on cost or on labor involved in a product or or whatever is being built um, where it doesn't make sense? How do you decide? How does a company decide? Well, maybe this was a huge mistake. Yeah, the, the the correct thing to do is to look at what we call TCO, total cost of ownership. So online on our website, uh, www.reshorenow.org, uh, you'll find the TCO estimator, and you can sign up and sign in, free to use, and it helps the, the company, any company, compare two sources, let's say the U.S. and China, U.S. and Mexico, wherever, and you start out with the FOB or XWorks price for the thing, and then it helps you add in duty, freight, packaging, carrying, cost of inventory, risk of stocking out, intellectual property loss risk, et cetera, et cetera, you know, 24 different factors, 29 different factors, and, and that's the way to make the decision. Now, before you send it off, like any, anybody who's listening and they've got work they're thinking of sending off somewhere else, use the TCO estimator, figure out if it makes sense. Because once you send it off, then there's a cost involved in bringing it back. You have to shift the tool and shift people, shift, you know, come up with new supply chains. But uh, total cost of ownership is, is the correct methodology. Um, you and I had talked once a long time ago about one of the costs of offshoring that was difficult to, to put a cash value on, and that was the lack of process improvement. I'd like you to talk about that a little much if you, a little bit if you can, but one of the things that you had told me that if you contract with a manufacturer, say in China, to build something for you for three or four years, what you don't get then is any process improvement, right? You don't have your own engineers there. It's not your staff. Products don't get better over time, and your costs don't go down over time. Uh, talk a little bit about how that works, because I think that is one of the great dark sides of offshoring. Yeah. The, we, we talk about manufacturing engineering optimization, the, the benefit of having your engineers who are still in the U.S. primarily, design engineers, and the manufacturing engineers and the foremen and the workers in the factory being able to get together and say, here's the new design, what do you think? Well, if you change that dimension a little bit, if you rounded that corner a bit, if you did, you made it a little thicker, a little thinner, it, it, we can make it a lot more easily, cut the cost, uh, improve the performance. And, and by having those two groups, the engineers and the manufacturing people, able to talk uh, physically together, uh, in the same time zone, in the same language, the chance of optimizing that process is improved. So at Harvard Business School, there's two professors, Pisano and Xi, S-H-I-H, and they, they rate, write uh, and study the what they call the industrial commons. And they say, when you, when you let your manufacturing get away, then you lose all kinds of confidence in, in the community and then when you want to design, when you want to improve, when you want to do all these things, you no longer have the skills necessary to make that happen. Another thing I talk about in terms of process, some people think of process improvement as lean, you know, being more efficient, eliminating waste. And uh, there's something called walking the gemba, which is 
uh, going out. If you want to improve your process, go out into the factory, see what's happening. That's called walking the gamba to help people decide what to do. And nobody, some people in the U.S. walk the gamba at, say, the assembly plant. Some people maybe at the China factory walk it about about making the parts. But no one's walking the whole gamba and thinking whether it makes sense to make the parts over in China and ship them here because each of those groups is optimizing for their own uh, facility, their own company, and not optimizing the entire system. So, so by having people close together, knowing that it makes sense to, to source locally, it's easier to uh, walk the whole gamba and optimize the process. Here, in, in terms of the auto industry, I think people are surprised to learn there are virtually no vehicles that are built in China that are sold in the U.S. Um, contract manufacturing isn't a big thing yet, though we're going to see more of that when electric cars come online. Is there a point where, where a product, especially a total complete product, becomes too expensive or too complex where offshoring just doesn't make sense? Uh, I'm not sure that price is, is the criterion. The Generally speaking, the more labor content there is relative to maybe the freight cost, oh. the more sense it is to offshore. So if there's, and I, I think I'm right that electric vehicles have less labor content in total, including the parts, than, than internal combustion. So that might suggest bringing the work, some of the work back to the U.S. But but I I, I think there, there is a uh, a tariff on on Chinese cars at the moment, and there is, yeah. and, and they're, they're, you know, so therefore they're not coming in. But if if that tariff were not there, well, GM makes you know, millions of cars over there, and I think Ford and everybody else does. I'm I'm pretty sure that the quality is good enough over there, and the cost is low enough that unless they're just afraid of for their reputation, that, that somebody there would be shipping cars into the United States, just like South Korea did in its, in its time, you know, mm -hmm. years ago. Yeah. So I'm, I'm curious, Harry, if have you found that your, that your goal and mission of convincing these American companies to reshore has that gotten easier in the time that you've been doing this? Like, are the enticements of offshoring manufacturing, moving it to China, are the benefits, the, the cost savings, all the things that, that companies look at their bottom line and decide to make that switch, are those enticements lessening as maybe China and India and some of these countries are, are ascending and, and kind of becoming more affluent themselves? Or has that maintained a fairly steady line? China is less price competitive today than it was 20 years ago. The, I've got a chart that shows uh, a variety of countries, uh, labor cost per unit of output uh, expressed in U.S. dollars. And the, the U.S. has stayed constant. The labor cost of making a gear or a transmission has stayed about constant over the last 20 years. Uh, productivity balances wage increases. Whereas in China, uh, their wages have gone up at 15% or so per year, and yeah. the labor cost is five times as high now as it was uh, 20 years ago. Now, it, it's still lower than it is here, but but it's less competitive than it used to be. So, so even before uh, COVID, even before the trade war, work was flowing out of China. And, and the, the question is, does it go to Vietnam, Cambodia, Malaysia, India, Mexico, or does it come to the United States? And, and, and I'd say at first the tendency was to go to those other countries. But now with the COVID experience with companies seeing what can happen due to a, a pandemic, due to the Suez Canal, due to Fukushima, due to the Thai floods, due to any of these, the, the L.A. dock strike, any of these things can, can make uh, trans-ocean shipments problematic and therefore companies uh, are deciding that a significantly higher percentage of, of what they're shifting should come back to the U.S. So secondarily, Mexico. We think Mexico is a um, there's, there's a category of work that is too labor intensive to get it to the U.S. and if you have a choice of it staying in China or coming to Mexico I'd prefer Mexico because product coming out of Mexico to the U.S. has 40 percent. That's four zero percent U.S. content. Parts mm. we've shipped down there, tooling, 
material, whereas product coming out of China has 5% U.S. content. So first choice, get it back to the U.S. If you can't get it here, Mexico is a darn good alternative. I was actually just going to ask you about that and what we used to refer to as the NAFTA states. Clearly, then, uh, if a vehicle isn't built in the United States, uh, the preference is for the good of the economy and the good for jobs that it be built somewhere in Canada or Mexico, correct? Correct. Yeah. Oh, go ahead. I'm sorry. I I, I think that the I've, I've developed a program and written about it suggesting that the U.S., Canada and Mexico should get together and bring millions of jobs back from Asia, uh, put the more labor intensive in Mexico, the more skill intensive up here. And uh, if you bring enough jobs to Mexico, the wages will go up in Mexico, the crime problems will go away, you won't need a wall. The uh, uh, And U.S. companies, which now are often, you know, offshoring work to Mexico, won't do so because the Mexicans will be making you know, $12 an hour instead of $4 an hour. And therefore, it won't make any sense anymore to move the jobs down to Mexico. So everybody wins in North America if we do that. So a, a good good teamwork amongst the three com- countries, I think, is great. Of course, my first priority, again, is always the U.S. Understood. Now, that initiative you just spoke of, trying to get the three companies to work together, is that something that's ongoing? Is that something you're trying to start? Yeah, it's something I write articles about. And, and I've just promoted on your program. <laughs> anybody there who knows anybody in the Biden administration or a senator or a congressman, hook us up and let's uh, let's, let's start talking about it. But it's uh, right. like I, I was in Mexico in, speaking in Monterey to an industrial group, and they, they all wanted to sell more and more to the U.S. And I said, I say, hey, that's stupid because we're going to get tired of that. Mexico at that time had an $80 billion trade surplus with the U.S., an $80 billion trade deficit with uh, China. I said, why don't you make the stuff that you're importing from China instead of trying to ship more to the U.S.? Because in the long run, somebody's going to come along in the U.S. that is, is going to be unhappy if you keep increasing your trade surplus with the U.S. So, so I'm convinced that the three countries together can be stronger than they are now if they, if they cooperate. Interesting. Harry, we're running out of time, but I wanted to talk to you a little bit about the microchip shortage. As you know, that that's absolutely crippling the auto industry, and I'm sure it's hurting other industries as well. Are there lessons to be learned about reshoring and about where we build things in relationship to the microchip shortage? There, there are a number of product categories, probably 100 product categories, where we are dangerously uh, lacking in self-sufficiency. And the most visible, the most easy for people to understand are, is chips and PPE and uh, 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 rare earth minerals, things like that. Everybody can understand that. But the, the risk, and I think the country has to do what it's doing of subsidizing the chip plants here, but, but, the, but if they don't also deal with the underlying problem that drove the chip manufacturing offshore, which is the U.S. is too expensive or it's too costly to make things here. So if they don't resolve that problem, then the chip factories will not be profitable, will not continue to grow. And their customer base, if nobody's making televisions and radios and cell phones and and computers here, then then their customer base isn't going to be here. The customer base is going to be China. And so instead of being dependent on China, for our chips, we're going to be on, dependent on China to sell our chips, and that doesn't make any sense. So our our recommendation, uh, much more important than fixing these immediate problems, which we call tourniquets, is to imp- make the U.S. more price competitive, and that means lowering the U.S. dollar, shifting resources from uh, university education to apprentice programs and certificate programs, uh, uh, getting the uh, keeping the corporate tax rate low so we're competitive, uh, having a value-added tax, you know, especially skilled workforce, but some of the others also. If we do that, then the chip factories will make money here and, and the use of chips will occur here, and that will be successful, a successful program. Excellent. Harry, we've completely run out of time. What is the best way for people to keep track of what you're doing and your success? Again, www.reshorenow.org. Uh, so you can sign up there for the e-newsletter 
and uh, you can you'll find my email address. Email me, ask for help. We're here to help any company that wants to reshore. Excellent, Harry. Thank you for joining us today. Thank you, Tom. That was Harry Moser with the Reshoring Initiative. You're going to want to check out everything that he's working on. We're going to take a break. When we come back, it's quiz time. Stick around. Welcome back to the Consumer Guide Car Stuff Podcast. All right, we're back. This is the Consumer Guide Car Stuff Podcast, and I am Tom Appel, publisher of Consumer Guide Automotive, and I'm darn glad you stuck around. Hey, Jill. Hey, yeah. Do you dabble in the social media stuff? Uh, do, does anyone need to know about this? Yes, they should. I'm, I'm definitely <laughs> a dabbler, um, which could be a social media, actually. I'm I was just thinking that. that. <laughs> <laughs> right I'm, I'm a dabbler. Now. Yeah, that'll like he'll surprise us with that in the future. Uh, but I'm a yeah, I'm 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 a dabbler. Um, I have accounts on TikTok, Twitter, Instagram, and uh, I am actually more than a dabbler. Actually, I, mean, I, I have to say I'm a bit uh, prolific on all of those. And you can find me at Jill Simonello, which is just my first and last name all together. Or um, I often use the hashtag Cartagenre on the vehicles that I'm driving. All right. Damon, you're active on Wombat. How can the folks follow you there? Wombat, that's kind of like a koala, right? Yeah. With wings or something? I don't know. Yeah. <laughs> oh. It's an Aussie chat board, I guess. I don't know. Oh. You talk about shrimp on the Barbie and Vegemite <laughs> and such? Yeah. Is it Wombat? Is it like a koala? I don't. I'm curious. I, don't. I know. I'm like, I have to Google that. So you composed haikus for your first segment joke, but you didn't do research on wombat. <laughs> oh, it's Busted. adorable! Busted. Adorable. It is adorable. It does not have Man. wings. I was completely wrong. <laughs> Damon, you're active. You're active on dabble. How can folks follow you? <laughs> I'm active on wombat dabble, and I'm also active on Twitter at Damon Bell likes cars. Twitter. I haven't heard of that one. Okay. Yeah. Yep. All right. Um, I think you guys know what time it is. Yes, we do. All right. It's quiz time. The Car Stuff Power Quiz brought to you this week by Tom on Twitter. Be sure to follow Tom, won't you? All right. <laughs> Today's topic is name a trim level. Yay. A little bit different this week. One of you has to give me one. The other one has to give me another. But since we're going back and forth, this works out to be fair. You'll see why. Damon, are you ready? Is this going to be one of those speed round things like last? No, no. Okay. All no. right. It, it'll be shorter anyway, just by its nature. Hmm. Damon, you go first this week. Damon, there are three Lincoln Corsair trim levels for 2021. Name one. Oh God. <laughs> um, reserve. Reserve. That's Damon's answer. Jill, I need one from you. Oh, I can't remember if the Corsair has a black label or not. Um, I kind of don't think it does. Um, Premier, I don't know. All right. Damon said <laughs> reserve. Jill said Premier. Jill, there is no Premier, but there is a reserve. Damon is on the board. Can I yeah. get a bonus point? For what? Saying Grand Touring. That's another one, isn't it? You can, but I didn't ask for two. Oh, okay. That's just it's a little brown note. I was, I was just flexing a little bit there. All right. Yeah, yeah. I'm like, this This is good. I'm going to totally tank this one because trim levels are not my jam. <laughs> well, well, Jill, uh, it's, this one's for you. Jill, there are three Hyundai <laughs> Accent trim levels for 2021. Name one. Oh, good grief. Um, Hyundai Accent. That would be Hyundai's subcompact sedan. Yeah. Nice car. Uh, limited. Limited. Damon, this question goes for you. I need a trim level. You may not say limited. Oh, God. I think Jill headed me off at the pass then. Um, limited is always a safe bet on something. I know. I'm it like, is. Limited, limited, limited platinum. Limited. You, have a, you have a 30% chance of being right with any vehicle. <laughs> um, shoot. Yeah, Jill's right with the limited. I'm almost sure. So I, I'm going to say S-E-L. Wow, you both get a point. Woohoo! 
Yeah, there's SE, SEL, and limited editions of the Accent for 2021. Damon, this question goes to you. Damon, there are four, really just two, Chrysler 300 trim levels for 2021. Mm. Name one. The Chrysler 300 being Chrysler's large rear drive sedan. Um, so, I'm going to sometimes all-wheel drive. Sometimes. Uh, I will say S. S. Jill, this question goes to you. Good golly. I I have to say it has probably been like 10 years since I've driven a Chrysler 300. Um, it hasn't changed. <laughs> and, and, and my parents owned previous generation 300 and they had a C. So I'm going to say C. My dad owns one now. Um, there have been C's, Jill, but there isn't one at the moment. Uh, there are Touring and S models. Damon goes ahead with oh. three. Touring was going to be my next guess, but I just remembered the C. Mm. All right, Jill, I think you can redeem yourself here. Uh-oh. Limited. <laughs> <laughs> All right, Damon, I need your answer. <laughs> Jill, there are five Kia Forte trim levels for 2021. Name one. Forte. Kia Forte. That is Kia's compact sedan. Also a nice um, car. They do like a lot of. Uh, I'm going to say SX. They have a lot of oh! Xs. <laughs> You took mine, Jill. Oh. Well, well, Damon, now you need another. No. Oh, God. Limited, no. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Shoot. I know SX, I can't remember what the low ones. I'm just gonna say S again. I can't remember what the other rotation levels are. Oh, you both missed on this one. There's an FE, oh. an LXS, a GT line, a GT and oh. LX. They changed uh, it to GTO. Okay. All right. It's one to three. Jill, you, you can't win this one, but you can <laughs> put in a good showing. Damon, finally, which of the following is not a 2021 Jeep Renegade trim level? Jeepster, Upland, Mocha, or Islander? Trim level? Or, yes. or package? Trim level. Oh, can you repeat those again? I can. All right, I, I repeat those. By the way, there are 900 trim levels for the Renegade. Uh, <laughs> Jeepster, Upland, Mocha, or Islander? One of those is fake. I'm going to say Jeepster. All right. Joe, this question goes to you. Which is not a Jeep Renegade trim level? I'm going to say Mocha. Long pause. <laughs> Jill is correct. There is no Mocha. Oh, there is a Jeepster, huh? Yeah, here are all the trim levels. Sport, Jeepster, Latitude, Upland, Freedom, 80th Anniversary, Islander, Limited, and Trailhawk. What the heck? Mm. <laughs> all right, three to two, but we go to the bonus round because that's what we do. Joe, the question goes to you first. Are you ready? Always. Jill, per WaffleHouse.com, which of the following items is not part of the Waffle House regular menu? Basically, you're finding the fake. Are you ready? All right, find the fake. All right, the chicken melt hash brown bowl, the Uncle Jim's Denver crepe, the T-bone and egg breakfast, or the Southern pecan pie. Talking about Waffle House. Man, so growing up, we had a, I, I, like when I was younger, younger, we lived in a place called Noblesville, Indiana, and um, they, had an, uh, they had a Waffle House on the other side of town, on the other side of the river, and we used to call it the Awful Waffle. So I have to tell you, that should tell you how long ago I, I was literally like in the fifth or sixth grade the last time I was at the Awful Waffle. Um, oh, oh, apparently people now refer to it lovingly as Waho. Waho, kind of like mm. a Wahoo. Um, yeah. All right, can you read the, sorry, I digressed because I was stalling and I still don't know the answer. What, what Can you read through those one more time, just the answer? I'm sorry, I forgot we were doing a quiz. Uh, <laughs> chicken out half brown bowl, Uncle okay. Jim's Denver crepe, T-bone and egg breakfast, or the Southern pecan pie? One of those is fake. Uh, I'm, uh, I'm gonna go with the T-bone breakfast right. thing. Damon, this question goes to you. Um, can you repeat the first two? The chicken melt hash brown bowl, or the Uncle Jim's Denver crepe? I have to say that 
the first one sounds especially disgusting. Um, well, disgusting, but awesome at the same time. Like the more I think mm. about it, the more I'm like, I think I'd like to try that. I'm gonna, I'm gonna say the Denver crepe. You are correct, and score the bonus point. Huh? All right. Well done. Uh, just some fun facts. <laughs> there are, <laughs> there are 439 Waffle Houses in Georgia alone. I always thought they were all in Indiana because you see them driving from here to Detroit. Uh, but yeah. there's just 23 in Indiana, just two in Illinois. Hmm. 2,100 though, all over the U.S. Oh, do you know where they're headquartered? It's a southern. Georgia. Georgia. Norcross, Georgia. Okay, yeah, I know it's a southern chain. Thank you for asking a question I knew the answer to. <laughs> <laughs> Is it, and isn't chicken and waffles a thing? Yeah. I don't Is know if that's a. I don't know if that's a Waho thing. Yeah. But it, but it's a, definitely like a southern thing. Ch- oh, it's chicken a thing. And waffles. It's a thing. It's hmm. a thing. Yeah, with All like right. the buffalo sauce and the honey and the waffles. That's actually pretty good. I'm just gonna say. No. Yeah. All right. Hey, Damon. Yes. The Consumer Guide CG Daily Drive blog. We do stuff there. Anything new? All kinds of stuff, Tom. I'm glad you asked. We've got, <laughs> <laughs> we've got, a, we've got a first spin report on that Grand Cherokee L that we talked about in the first segment. So you definitely want to check that out. Um, we've got a, a few other test drives as well, um, including... Uh, a full test drive of the 2021 Nissan Rogue Platinum. Um, that is redesigned for 2021, and it's a consumer guide Best Buy. And in my book, if you just need a straight-ahead family hauler compact SUV, the Rogue is one of the best on the market. It's just for its size. It's got impressive uh, passenger and cargo space and lots of uh, uh, great technology and comfort features. So, so here's the question. The, oh, go ahead, Jill. Sorry. I, I'm like, is this a four-ton vehicle? Yeah, that is. Okay. That's it's a pretty close. upright thing. Yeah, yeah. The 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 really tall roof line, which gives it good headroom. I think that might even be a Ford Damon vehicle too. Wow. Huh. Um, yeah, and the other thing I really like about the Rogue, the rear doors, the openings are nice and large. Oh and yeah. Open almost 90 degrees and if yeah. you've got kids and babies and stuff in car seats to get in and out that makes a huge difference that's one of the things i really like about the rogue so as we've noted before this is really the year of nissan a new rogue a new pathfinder and a new frontier in the same year this is an injection uh in, in, directly into the heart of a company that badly needed an injection in the heart yeah, well, then they sure. did the the refresh of the kicks, the refresh of the Armada. So, I mean, they yeah, they got some stuff going on. They do, for sure. Um, so that's a good uh, test drive review, and uh, we've got a review of the Hyundai Sonata N line. Um, that is the new for twenty one. The Sonata was redesigned for twenty twenty. For twenty one, it gets this new sporty version called N line. Uh, that gets a hotter engine. That is a turbocharged 2.5 liter four cylinder that puts out 290 horsepower. The the you know the hotted up mainstream midsize sedan is kind of a rare beast, um, but the Sonata N line is one, and the Toyota Camry TRD is an is another. Mm. Uh, I think beyond that, there's there's really not much overtly sporty stuff in the mainstream brand midsize sedan segment no there really isn't is there that's a that's a great point i hadn't considered that yeah because that got rid of the s didn't they or their sport version yeah that plays up a price level though yeah we're talking mainstream mainstream brand um yeah i know ford used to have the the fusion sport which was a surprisingly muscular thing Um, it was yeah and and we should be clear, this N-Line is, is not a full-blown hot rod. You can think of it as uh, a mainstream midsize sedan that's just a bit spicier. So enough to be daily driver practical, just with a bit more gusto than, than the norm. And then I have to mention, because I love this vehicle for its perversity, um, there is the Camry TRD, but there is also the Avalon TRD, <laughs> which, which is... <laughs> 
seems like the least likely vehicle on the planet to receive Toyota's TRD uh, treatment, and I love that vehicle so much. <laughs> it's, yeah, that's. I want, and they, I, that could be. It's a curiosity even now. That seems like it, it would be a great sleeper collectible car in the future. Yeah, it really does, because people are not going to remember it in the future. Yeah. <laughs> um, and so those are the, the test drive. We've, off, was off, we've also got a handy article called How to Finance Your Car, which really delves into the ins and outs of, of credit and, and you know credit scores and how that relates to your ability to get an auto loan. So lots of useful information there. When... I'm old enough to remember a time when we didn't worry about things like credit histories and credit reports, and now it seems like every credit reporting agency advertises, and about a million different weird credit protection companies advertise now. And the crazy thing is, all this seems to have become reality. When you go for a loan, there's, there is a chance that there is crazy stuff on your credit report that you got to get a fix, got to get fixed, or you're not going to get a loan. It's, it's kind of a strange thing that consumers really didn't need to worry about at one point and probably don't need the headache of now. Mm -hmm. But the, the numbers that trouble me, I think you guys have read this elsewhere too, but we cover it in this particular blog post, is that the average car loan is now comfortably, comfortably over five years. Yeah, yeah, crazy. Yeah, such and a long span of time. It's, it's interesting to me that, that car sales have not suffered because of this, because you are upside down, and that is the condition when you owe more on your vehicle than it's worth for a fairly long period of time, uh, making it difficult to trade in a vehicle. But yet car sales have been robust, and right now they'd be very robust if there were any cars to sell. <laughs> what else do we have, Damon? Uh, just a couple gallery articles. We've got uh, a gallery of the compact cars of 1969, which includes a bit of interesting data too. 1969, an interesting snapshot in time for what yeah. we considered a compact car because that, of course, is you've got your Falcons, you've got your Valiants and your Darts and your Chevy 2 Novas, but the true subcompacts like your Vegas and Pintos and Chevettes and the like, those had not been <laughs> invented yet or introduced yet. So um, I haven't done an actual spec comparison, but I would wager that these quote unquote compacts of 69 uh, are actually a bit larger uh, than the compacts and subcompacts yeah. of today. Well, guess what we did again, kids? Oh, are we up against the clock again? Talk we are much. indeed. <laughs> All right. All right. Great show. Thanks to our guest this week, Harry Moser of the Reshoring Initiative. Check him out at reshorenow.org. Thanks, as always, to Jill and Damon. Thanks to producer Lady B and the good folks here at WCPT AMA 20 in Chicago. And as always, a special shout out to my friends Steve and Johnny. Want to be added to the Car Stuff mailing list? And you do. Drop us a line at carstuff at consumerguide.com. That is carstuff at consumerguide.com. Hey, let's talk more about cars again next week.